Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyover Labs. Thanks for joining us. And today we're lucky enough to talk to a Corey Kidd. And Corey is the founder and CEO of Catelia Health. And Catelia sells a personal health care companion. So what is that exactly? Well, it's a ro- little robot that helps people remember to take their medications and provides other health suggestions. It's, it's, so it's pretty cool. You have to see some videos, which we'll post. And we'll find out more, of course, about it. So Catelia has raised about $1.25 million from a Coastal Adventures. And so they've done quite a bit with a small amount of money, which isn't easy. And Corey himself has quite a background. He's a PhD from MIT Media Lab and has worked with a number of interesting companies and projects. So I invited Corey to hear more about Catelia and their robot Mebu and, and learn more about Corey's background and how he pulled together Mebu over many years of research and development. So, uh, Corey, thanks for coming on the show today. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah. So as I kind of alluded to in the intro, you know, you have an interesting background. Do you want to give us a little, little overview on your background? Sure. I mean, I've been in the healthcare technology space for a long time now, the better part of two decades. Uh, back in the 1990s, I was down in Atlanta, Georgia Tech, uh, first as a student, did an undergrad degree in computer science. And then by the time I finished up, had been hired as a research faculty member and ended up helping to build and run a lab called the Aware Home, where we were looking at a lot of technology focused on an older population and how we help people live at home longer rather than move into a nursing home or assisted living facility. Then in 2001, I went back to graduate school. As you mentioned, I went to MIT. Uh, so I spent six and a half years there at the Media Lab where I did my master's and PhD in what I usually say is human-robot interaction, but it was really the intersection of artificial intelligence, psychology, medicine, and, of course, robotics, which is a part of what I'm still doing now. And the last half of that time, I actually split between MIT and Boston University Medical Center, where I did my clinical work in endocrinology for three Hmm. years. And since finishing at the end of 2007, I've been in the startup world, focused on commercializing this kind of technology to help people with a lot of different healthcare issues and applications. Interesting. And so how, wow, I mean, you were definitely ahead of the time. If you were working on kind of helping seniors live in <laughs> homes in longer in 2000, you know, that's like a hot topic now. Like, what, I'm curious, what were you working on back then? Um, so started on that project, uh, joined that group around 1998-1999, and we were looking at a lot of different home-based technology, whether that be sensors to try to figure out what was you know, going on in the home environment, some things embedded in the floors, the cameras in the ceilings, all different sorts of things uh, to, to better understand activity in the home, to actuators, right, so simple things like open and closing uh, doors or blinds or windows, the things that we commonly think of as home automation today, uh, to different interfaces, whether that be interfaces kind of like we have uh, in many places today, you know, flat screens or voice-activated interfaces. And, you know, now things like Siri or Amazon Echo are fairly common. 15 to 20 years ago, that was a pretty challenging technology to build yeah. and get to work well. So really looking at just all sorts of different things and how we integrate it into the everyday environment of an individual. Gotcha. Okay. 
and uh, how you know how, how did you originally get interested in working with robotics and healthcare? You know, what was do you remember like was there a project or because you've been working in a long time? So what was kind of the initial spark? Yeah, I mean, going back even more than 20 years ago, I've had a, a long-time interest in technology and programming since I was, I don't know, probably eight years old back in the 1980s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> had my first Commodore 64. <laughs> and, you know, through, you know, through going to university, considering whether to go into technology or go into medicine, you know, okay. at one point in time, trying to decide whether to, to get a degree in computer science or in uh, pre-med. And I've kind of chosen to combine those. So the academic route that I took was more, slightly more on the technical side, as I mentioned, my undergrad degree in computer science. And then my grad degrees are from MIT, but did a bit of clinical work as well. So it's really, for me, been a long time about bringing those two things together. So, you know, applying technology in the real world in ways that can, you know, practically help people with their healthcare. Gotcha. And MIT, you know, you mentioned that that the work on projects had across multiple disciplines. And so was that an, an established lab or did you kind of create your own thing when you went there? Yeah, I did my graduate work in the media lab, which, yeah. if you're familiar yeah. with it, is known for being uh, an amalgamation <laughs> of many different things, right? So <laughs> I was in a research lab that was focused on robotics. Now, so the media lab is, you know, a fairly large place. Within it, there are about 25 to 30 faculty at any given time, each running their own research lab on a particular topic. And so while you know, my degree was within a lab focused on interactive robots or social robots with uh, Professor Cynthia Brazil. You know, my work was kind of bringing that together with healthcare applications. And so if you are a student at the Media Lab, you know, your coursework is a combination of courses from a number of different places. So usually a small number of those are courses taught within the Media Lab. You can choose from courses across the rest of MIT as well, as well as some neighboring universities. Uh, fortunately, Boston has a few good ones in the area. Yes, just a few. Um, <laughs> yeah, 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 and I'm curious, you know, why in the, in the chronology um, do you do practice in that? So a couple of reasons. I ended up meeting Dr. Carolina Povian, who runs the Nutrition Weight Management Clinic at Boston University Medical Center, uh, so in the Department of Endocrinology. And within that, you know, the big healthcare issue that uh, that profession spends a lot of time focused on is around diabetes and weight management. And if we're looking at problems, you know, looking for problems that we can potentially help a lot of people with, this is definitely a big one, right? So if we think about weight loss in the United States, we've got about two-thirds of our population overweight or obese. So from a you know academic or medical study perspective, it's great because there's you know, a lot of literature, a lot of studies done on this challenge. And just from a practical perspective, right, if it's something where we can make a difference, it has the potential to impact positively a lot of people. Gotcha. Makes, yeah, that's for sure. And, uh, okay, so when you're at MIT, what, what type of projects were you working on? Were, were they related to Telia that you're working on now, or um, or are they different projects? Yeah, I did a variety of different things, but the core of my work has followed a similar arc for about 15 years now. So my first couple of years there, essentially my master's degree, I 
created and ran a whole series of studies that, of course, involved technology, building and programming robots, but was really more about psychology. Uh, so in addition to you know, my advisor, uh, Professor Cynthia Brazil at the Media Lab, and then Rob Picard, who was also on my master's committee at the Media Lab. I work with uh, Professor Cliff Nass, who was at Stanford University and had written a book a few years before that focused on psychology of human-computer interaction and what's happening when people are interacting with a lot of technology that we were used to having around us in the late 1990s. And we designed a series of studies to look at what's happening when people are interacting with robots. And the short summary of two years of work is what we found is that, you know, we know that face-to-face interaction makes a difference, right? I'm in business now. I spend a lot of time meeting with people in my company, with investors, with customers, with partners, spend a lot of time on the road. And, you know, there's a lot of effort involved in getting to all of those meetings all over the U.S. or the world. Now, I could do all of that over the phone, right? We could set up uh, phone calls or maybe a video conference. And certainly I spend time on those, but I still make the effort to meet face-to-face with people, as I'm sure everyone listening here does, because we get intuitively that there's a difference when we're face-to-face with someone. Now, it turns out that psychologists have studied for decades what that difference is. Hmm. When we're face-to-face, we create a stronger relationship. That relationship is going to last longer. Uh, And we find that person that we're talking with to be more credible, more informative, more trustworthy. And what I discovered is that these basic psychological differences actually carry over very strongly into the world of technology. In other words, when you put that physical thing in front of someone, the robot, that can look at them, can make eye contact, that can share physical space, you get a lot of those effects of face-to-face interaction that you'll never get through the screen. So the fact that you have something physically there means that interaction is much more like being face-to-face with another person versus some kind of mediated interaction through text or voice or video. So that was really the the foundation of the work I was doing then. And that led then into, okay, what are the real-world applications of this? That's when I started working also at Boston University Medical Center, developing both software and hardware to really implement this. Uh, So if you want to see what the earlier robots that I was building look like, you can type my name into Hmm. Google, Corey, C-O-R-Y, KID, K-I-D-D, and Autumn, A-U-T-O-M. And you'll see stuff dating back to my time at MIT a decade ago, as well as stuff from my first company that I can talk about in a minute. But what I ended up building for my PhD work was essentially a robotic weight loss coach. And we put these in patients' homes doing a real-world randomized controlled trial. And that really went from this psychological theory, hey, it looks like this stuff is a lot more effective in interaction than something on a screen, to real-world practice and proof. So we saw that this really works with people, helping them engage with something for much longer. And, of course, that carries forward to what we're doing today at Catalia Health. So, you know, while the work at MIT, particularly in the early days, much more theoretical, uh, it evolved very quickly into practical applications and that's carried forward into the stuff I'm building today more than 10 years later. Hmm. Yeah, that was, that was a good explanation. You already answered one of my later questions of why why the robot instead of an app, but that it makes a lot of <laughs> sense. I mean, and everyone should see this robot. It's a cute little robot, so I want one in my, uh, my house. <laughs> It's a well de- well designed <laughs> well de- well designed um, which we can get into but I'm curious how I, but yeah anyways um before we get there uh you, uh, you mentioned that uh 
the previous before we get into talking more about Telio, you mentioned that previous startup. Can you share a little bit more about where you're working on there? Certainly. So my first startup was called Intuitive Automata. This was a company that I started straight out of graduate school with a couple of co-founders. And we were focused on applying exactly what I was working on in my PhD work in the real world. And this company was this big bet. Now, remember, this was in 2007 when I formed this company. You know, I think we actually legally established the company a few weeks before the first iPhone was announced, let alone, you know, smartphones being shipped. So, you know, we're talking about a long time ago in terms of technology time. And what that really meant in practical, uh, you know, practical application there is that building the kind of stuff that we were doing, the hardware, the software, the interactive robots, cost about a hundred times than what it does today. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, crazy. we think about the effects yeah. of smartphones yeah. and there's the obvious effect, right? We've all got this really powerful device in our pocket. We've got all these cool apps at our fingertips, but there's also been a huge effect in terms of product design and manufacturing. So all the components that go into these devices that we carry around are now commodity components. So things like, you know, tiny, low cost, low power processors, memory, screens, uh, you know, touch interfaces, all this kind of stuff was pretty rare 10 years ago, you know, and if you could get it, it was incredibly expensive. So building the stuff was expensive. And so, you know, we built a company around the concept that, okay, we know this works. Let's figure out the business model for it. And we spent about five years doing that. And we did have some limited success in doing sales to big pharma companies, to some of the largest health insurers in the U.S., uh, to some of the large healthcare systems, self-insured employers, direct to individuals. But because of the limitations in the business model, because of the expense of building the platform, it never really took off. So, you know, while we developed a lot of great technology uh, and, you know, had some great applications around it, it was just too early for that company to really be feasible. So we ended up shutting that down about three and a half years ago. Uh, so kind of leaving the company open to hold the IP that was created, but uh, kind of ceasing work on that at that time. Gotcha. Okay. And then, uh, and um, yeah, and how how was that whole process? How did that help you with uh, starting Catalia next? Did you do things differently, or um, I guess I guess the hard I guess the 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 costs were way down. So regardless, that probably helped you a lot. <laughs> um, but yeah, any other yeah. So the costs have come down. Yeah. Definitely. You know, I think the, the biggest thing from that company was, you know, partly just time, right? And the fact that we're yeah. almost a decade on now means, of course, the cost of technology are much, much lower for building this kind of stuff. But also it was developing a much deeper, uh, deeper understanding of the healthcare system, mm-hmm. right? So in selling to those five different channels that I'm talking about, you know, I, I, you know, quick aside, I based that company in Hong Kong, uh, largely for economic reasons in terms of inability to fundraise in the U.S. around healthcare or, you know, hardware back in 2008. Uh, but about three years ago, I moved back to the U.S. and I spent about a year trying to answer a couple of fundamental questions. So starting with this technology that we knew worked very well, question one is, okay, where can we apply this in healthcare? And the short answer is kind of everywhere, right? There are a lot of applications where, you know, changing our behavior, helping us to adhere to something, 
is really critical to healthcare outcomes. Uh, so obviously a huge opportunity. And the second question then is trying to understand, okay, who is the customer for this that's willing to pay for this today? So leveraging the network that I built and running that first company for five or six years, had a lot of conversations with many of those companies and individuals, and that's really what helped me focus in on the specific areas that we're working on at Catalia Health, which are around chronic disease management and medication adherence. So still two enormous challenges, but focused on particular application areas where a lot of people in healthcare are actively looking for solutions. Gotcha. Okay. Well put. And so you started Catalia in 2014, right? And um, can you just give everyone a a brief overview. Oh, you kind of did, but, uh, you know, about the, maybe like a use case and just kind of describe a little bit more what it, what, uh, maybe the robot does for, with people. Certainly. So we're building a platform. Uh, and what I mean by that is the core software and hardware for Maybu gets shared across a lot of different applications. And so the the easy part to see is the robot. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maybu the robot is there's a short video on our website, italiahealth.com. And that robot was designed by IDEO. And so we use that to interact with patients across a variety of applications. And our core software platform also gets shared across those applications. And so there's the kind of infrastructure stuff, right, that makes it work, that makes the robot move, that communicate back with our backend platform. But there's also the core artificial intelligence algorithms that really draw directly from psychology in understanding how we create these conversations how we create a relationship with that individual that gets built up over time, uh, and, you know, in general, how we follow up with patients. And then on top of that, what we're doing is building particular applications. So our customers at Catalia Health are not the individuals that want to use this, but either the drug maker, the large pharmaceutical manufacturers, or the hospitals, the large integrated health systems. And for those customers, we're building applications around particular diseases, uh, that patients are trying to manage or particular treatments that they'll use for those diseases. And so what's actually happening for the patient then is you know, they don't need to know any of the complicated technology behind it. They get this device. It gets mailed to them at their home. No charge to the patients, by the way. So our mm-hmm. customers, pharma and integrated health, are the ones paying us for it. And, you know, a patient with uh, you know, taking a certain drug might get this mailed to their home. They'll take it out of the box and plug it in, which is the entire setup process. Everything else happens through conversation, and the robot will turn on, you know, maybe stretch its neck, look around, and, oh, thanks for taking me out of that box. Good to see you. Uh, I'm I'm sorry to hear about your cancer, but, uh, you know, I'm going to help you make sure you take your medication, answer any questions that you have, and I'll get some information back to your pharmacist so that uh, he or she can help you as well. So the use case for the patient is these everyday conversations, you know, so maybe it's just going to check in, ah. Want to see how you're feeling today. You know, is everything going okay? And you can have a short back and forth conversation, kind of like talking to Siri or your Amazon Echo, uh, where maybe who's checking in, seeing how things are going, giving advice at that point in time, uh, and reporting that data back to either a pharmacist or a doctor, depending on who our partner is for that particular application. Interesting. And so that dialogue piece just sounds uh, fairly complex. I feel like there's could be a and a, a large number of potential uh, dialogues that could occur, even if you're just talking about diabetes or whatever it might be. Um, you know, you mentioned AI. 
Do you, is that dialogue continually being updated based on response, and or how are you designing that? So there's an entire set of algorithms behind this that are really crafting that dialogue for that patient at that point in time. So we're building up these models of an individual, understanding what they need medically, understanding uh, psychologically what this particular patient needs at this point in time. And that is part of what goes into crafting that specific conversation for the individual. There's a lot going on behind the scenes as a result of that conversation that's helping us to better model that person so we can choose what we're going to say next. And so, you know, there's a a huge database of content that the robot can then draw from in those conversations. So the result for the patient is that no two conversations are the same. It's always learning about and adapting to the individual and trying to talk about what they need at that particular point in time. Interesting. And, so was this the were those algorithms based? Um, did you develop those starting in two thousand fourteen, or did you have some of that already done by the time you started Catalia? So we've done a lot of new work here at Catalia Health, okay. but the concept that we build on is stuff that I've been building for over a decade now. Okay, wow. And uh, and what what type of uh, um, use cases or diseases do you uh, are you currently working on? You know, it's a, one, one of those prescription so, adherence, but you mentioned maybe some other disease management ones as well. Yeah, you know, largely things in oncology, so dealing with different cancers and immunology, uh, heart failure, so a variety of different applications uh, that we're working on at KTL. Interesting. And and what's the difference if somebody has, and I don't know if you know this off the top of your head, but somebody has heart failure versus a cancer you know, how's the, how's the dialogue different, especially initially? Um, or is it pretty similar initially and then it changes, adapts over time? So the latter, right? So okay. when we start off, it's, uh, you know, just like you're meeting someone new, yeah. right? That first thing you're going to say is probably, you know, hi, my name is nice to meet you. <laughs> right? That's right. It's kind of a way that we, we always start off in interaction with someone. But from there, it's going to go in a very different direction, right? Why are you meeting this person? What's the context? Uh, you know, why, where is this conversation supposed to go? Is this something casual? Is it a business uh, conversation? You know, what, what, what's the context that, that the direction of that conversation? And so the same kind of thing happens here, right? So in the first conversation, she's going to start off with a greeting and, you know, the robot will introduce herself to the patient. And then from there, maybe talk a little bit about the purpose and how they're going to work together. But then it's going to get into stuff that's disease specific. So part of what our team is doing is when we're building any new application is focusing in on what are the challenges for that particular patient population. You know, if we're talking about, say, a particular cancer where our patients are 70, 80, 90 years old, there is a different set of things that they're dealing with if we're talking about a disease that typically uh, affects people in their 30s, 40s, 50s. And, you know, just the types of things that those two groups of patients are going to be dealing with are going to be a little bit different. And you know, the other thing that we look at, of course, are what are the challenges relevant to that specific disease, right? What are the questions I need to ask? each day or each week about how that disease is affecting you. That's going to be very different for 
a heart failure patient versus a cancer patient. We care about different things medically that are going to be most relevant to that individual. And so a lot of what's going on as we're building these applications is understanding those particular needs, and that will then end up driving the conversation with the patient later on. Hmm. I can see why this is a where would, you've been working at for 10 years. That sounds, <laughs> does not seem like an easy problem to solve. <laughs> and I'm sure you're always working on it some more. That's, that's, that's interesting. Um, so, and, and I'm curious, what is, and maybe, I don't know if you can share this, if you even, if, what type of stats you have, but the adherence to the, or the usability, and once it comes in somebody's home, you know, a lot of times people stop using technology. Um, you know, how, how do you encourage, you know, da- that daily interaction? And, uh, you know, do you have, um, you know, how, how many people actually continue to use it on a daily basis? So if we look at a lot of the technology solutions trying to solve this problem, they think first about the technology. And what I mean by that is there are, I don't know how many, but in the hundreds, if not thousands of apps that you can download for your iPhone or Android phone that will help you remember to take a pill. And this is because that kind of an app is easy to build on that device, right? We can set an alarm. We can send the reminder. Now, as I mentioned a minute ago, one of the things that we look at in each disease state are what are the challenges for that patient. One of the things that we research are what are the so-called barriers to adherence. In other words, what are the problems that those patients actually have with staying on therapy? And typically, we'll come up with a list of four or five challenges that are most common for that patient population. And forgetting to take a drug is always on there. And it's always the last thing on that list. In other words, there are a lot of other issues that, you know, we have as individuals besides forgetting. There are a lot of other reasons why I might not want to take that pill today or give myself that injection or, you know, so there's, there's a lot of different aspects of this that are important. And we really start with two things when we think about building these applications. So first, what I was talking about a few minutes ago, the relationship. Right. The key thing that we're trying to do is build up the relationship between the patient and the robot. Right. And we're not trying to replace people with this. We're not trying to make people think this is human. If you take one look at the robots that we're talking about here, you'll see very clearly (laughs) these are not human like, right? They're, they're plastic. They're currently bright yellow plastic. Uh, but they do have eyes, right? They can look at you. There's something to focus on. But those conversations are about how you're going to work together and how to build up that relationship. And so that's really the foundation of what we do. And then it's talking about what are the challenges for that individual. And what we find is that, yes, there are some medical challenges around side effects and side effect management that we can learn from the patient. But a lot of the challenges are psychological. And if we are later in life and dealing with chronic diseases, that affects us in many ways besides just medically. And we have a conversation with a patient around all of these things. And so as a result of this, what we see is an enormous difference in how patients use this kind of technology over time versus what patients will do with an app. So we've seen a much greater rate of patients sticking with this over long periods of time versus what most technology is able to help patients with today. Hmm. Interesting. And it makes so much sense. I mean, you're right. Usually, well, in other fields, but then people bring the kind of technology perspective to healthcare, and that's what where they lead with. But really, there's, yeah, there's so much more to it as you've been talking about today and been researching for many years, the psychology perspective and the 
yeah, just the emotional perspective. And yeah, that's interesting. It, 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 so yeah, really it involves kind of a holistic view, like perspective <laughs> to design a, a, um, a high quality healthcare technology in some ways, especially one that's in somebody's home. Hmm. Okay. Absolutely. And starting with the healthcare and the patient yeah. as opposed to the technology, yeah. what makes this usable and useful to individuals. Okay. And so, you know, we talked a little bit about the design of the robot and uh, I wish everybody could see it, but I guess, well, you can, I'll, I'll put a link <laughs> so on, on the website, but uh, uh, you know, you, you mentioned the IDO helped uh, design it. How, so yeah, I, can you talk about kind of the design process for the robot and why you picked a particular design? Sure. So, you know, I mentioned a minute ago, the robot has eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's actually one of the key things. And the reason for that is not about it being a gimmick or like a tool, but this actually goes back to the psychology research that it was doing 15 years ago. One of the things that we found in those early studies is the ability for the eyes to move around and make eye contact was actually really important for these kinds of applications. Now, we know in general with people, eye contact is really important. Right? Imagine meeting someone and having a five-minute conversation, and they are the entire time staring past your shoulder and looking off into the distance. You're going to find that person a bit awkward, a bit strange. (laughs) (laughs) It's just not quite the same as having a conversation like we're used to. Now, what we learned in those early studies is that eye contact with the robot was also very important. Now, it's not the thing that sustains the long-term relationship, but it is the thing that helps draw that individual in at first. You know, if we think about, uh, you know, imagine you're at a crowded party in a big area and you're all the way across the room from someone who you see look in your direction. You can instantly tell if they're looking in your eyes or looking right past you. It's just something that we can innately do. Eye contact is, you know, we're hardwired to do. And we're not even the only species that do this. Dogs, for example, can do the same thing. Right? So eye contact is really critical. So what that meant is going into work with IDO and designing this robot, we had a very broad uh, design brief that we gave them. So we wanted something roughly the size of a kitchen appliance. We could build this thing to be the size of your smartphone, but then it's a little too small. Right? You don't take it seriously. You can toss it behind some paperwork, drop it in a drawer, and it's gone. <laughs> but at the same time, we don't need something that's human size. Right? That just takes up too much space. Uh, no one's going to want that in their home. And, you know, something kind of countertop, appliance size, you know, the size of, say, a blender or a toaster actually works pretty well. So we get in that rough size criteria. Uh, we need a touchscreen on it. Now, voice interaction is getting better and better, but it's not going to replace visual interaction completely. Uh, for a long time in general, although it's getting much better with the things like the Echo, but in these kinds of applications, we're always going to need the screen. So imagine the scenario where, you know, I'm taking, uh, say I have to give myself an injection every week or two or every day, whatever it might be. And, you know, the, the robot companion can say to me, Oh, yeah, I know you're just kind of getting started on this and it can be tough at first. Do you remember how to do it? Or do you want me to show you that video again that your doctor did? Yeah. Right. So using it for things like that, even though most of the conversation is 
literally conversation spoken back and forth, having that kind of capability is important. And we also, for you know, reasons of demographics that we're working with, many of our patients are older, may have a harder time seeing or touching something on the screen. We needed a decent sized screen. So it couldn't be uh, you know, a little three-inch screen like on a smaller phone. We went with a slightly larger screen. And finally, we needed the eyes. We needed to be able to look at and make eye contact with the person for the reasons I was talking about. So those were really the three things that we went into IDO with. Rough size, we need a screen, we need eyes. And from there, we had a uh, very broad, wide-open, undesigned process. <laughs> we spent a few weeks with the industrial design team looking at all different sorts of directions, lots of different inspiration for what this might look like. And then from there, it was really an iterative process of narrowing down until we came to, you know, something that looked close to the Meibu robot that you can see on our website now. Uh, and then the overall process was only about a month and a month to a month and a half oh, wow. in terms of the industrial design of this uh, fairly quick process. Uh, you know, we had their whole team, Ideas San Francisco Studio, working on this. So, you know, a lot of excellent designers who put a lot of effort and thought into this and so came up with the product that you see there. Uh, and then comes, uh, you know, another set of hard work around turning that into something that's manufacturable. So there's, of course, challenges around that as well. But the initial design was set uh, in about a month and a half. And, and where, where do you manufacture it? Uh, we have manufacturing partners in China that we're manufacturing with. Gotcha. Interesting. Okay. Which makes sense since you're over there and I'm sure IDO has a few contacts over there too. <laughs> Interesting. Um, okay. And so what, what's, what uh, technologies is in Meibu? Uh, you know, there's a speaker and a microphone. Is there a camera? Do you actually track people's eyes or how do you uh, try to get that eye, that, uh, eye contact? So yes, there is a camera there. We know know where the patient is and who they are so we can look at them. Uh, we're not using that camera for anything else. So in other words, none of the, the video ever gets recorded or sent off of the device. It's just used in real time to know where you are and to understand something about uh, you know potentially your emotions during the interaction. We use a microphone for the same reason, right? We're able to listen to what the patient's saying during conversation. And just like the video, that audio also never goes anywhere. It's not even stored locally on the device. We just use it to listen to what someone is saying so that we're able to have that conversation with them. Gotcha. Okay. And we're, we're getting near, a little nearer the end of the interview, but I got a, a couple more questions. Um, sure. What's, uh, yeah, well, one of them is, you know, what's kind of your vision for, Maybe the robot over, or it could be other robots uh, interactions over the next five to ten years. Like, what, what would in five years, if you were, had this ideal robot, or in ten years, maybe if it takes that much time, what would, uh, what would it be doing? Well, I can tell you where our robots are going in the next five years. Okay. And I described the scenario where the robot comes out of the box and starts talking to the patient today. And, you know, I think that's a great application. We'll start shipping these to patients this fall. Uh, I hope that it will be very helpful for many patients. And I think on the business side, you know, we've built a great model here. But the reality is for those patients, you know, particularly our older patients suffering chronic conditions, is they're, they're probably dealing with two, three, four other things. They might be taking another 10 or 15 pills a day. Uh, 
And so while we're starting helping patients with a particular disease, in five years, when that robot comes out of the box and stretches its neck and says, you know, thanks for taking me out of there. I was getting so cramped. Uh, I'm sorry to hear about your cancer. I, I know you've been dealing with diabetes for years and you've got high blood pressure. Look, here's the list of the 11 medications you take every day. You know, I'm glad to be here. I'm going to help you with all of this. Mm. And we'll get information back to your doctor and your nurses and your entire care team so that together we can provide you with the best health care we can. So that's where we're going with this, right? So really focused on being a, an interactive coach that can help any of us with all of the ongoing healthcare conditions that we face and that we're dealing with and to, again, provide the best care that we can to a large number of patients. And so yeah, I'm interested, how, how do you, uh, and maybe it's a kind of built in, but, you know, more around adaptive learning. So, you know, if you're treating, helping someone with diabetes, like how do you know it's working? And if, if it is, then how do you put that back into your model to, to you know, keep improving it? Because I can imagine over time you could have a really smart robot, but it, it, some of this is offline or some of it's not necessarily all, you know, embedded into this robot and the interaction with the, the person always. Or maybe it is. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, well, it's a combination of things. So a lot of it can happen in real time with the person. But we're also you know, learning and improving the models across groups of patients. So understanding how our behavioral models can work better with patients. Understanding medically how we adapt to giving the right information at the right time to an individual. And so this goes even beyond what we're doing here at Catalia Health. So in terms of specific conversation to patients, that's, of course, things that we're building. But we also you know, watch medical best practices in certain areas and disease states. You know, the medical portion of our product team is always looking at, you know, what are best practices for certain patient populations so that we can always deliver, you know, the, the best information that we can to provide that patient with, uh, with good care. And so there's a lot that we can do as we learn from more and more patients who use these over the next several years. We get a lot of information to kind of feedback and improve the system. But again, healthcare is a constantly changing field. We're always learning more, and we'll be able to employ that in the conversations that we have with patients. Gotcha. Okay. And you said that you're officially shipping in, in this fall? Is that what you said? Correct. Okay. Yes. Oh, cool. Well, that's soon. <laughs> um, so, Very. Yeah, you're like, <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, so do you... And this is the last question. Do you have, um, have, has maybe been in many homes so far helping patients? And if you, if they have, you know, do you have an example of how it helped a person? Maybe you don't, since I know you haven't officially shipped it, but. Yeah, with this version of the product, it will go into first home long term later this fall. We've done a lot of testing uh, with patients in the short term with this version of it. And previous versions of the technology that I've built have been in patients' homes okay. for months. You know, I can go back to the very first time I put these in homes, which was almost 10 years ago now, back in 2007. And that was a trial that was uh, supposed to last only six weeks. Uh, a few weeks after that, about two months into that, I finally got most of the robots back. 
as it turns out, one of the challenges of running that particular study is at the end of it, patients didn't want to give them back to me. No way. Oh, <laughs> they, wow. wow. They, they, they tried to negotiate, <laughs> you know, just a few more weeks, uh, you know, maybe one more month. And I went back to, to get those. And the at that point, the robots I'd hand built all of them. So they were a bit bulky given 2006, yeah. 2007 technology. The patients had dressed them up. They were wearing hats, oh, scarves. One of them had a red feather boa around its neck. <laughs> Every single person had named their robot unprompted. So, you know, we've seen a lot in terms of how the relationship really develops with individuals and how people really like these things. They really find them helpful in terms of helping them stick with what they already want to do with their health care, but run into the challenges that all of us do. We're trying to make real changes over time. Hmm. That's good. Yeah, I remember seeing on one of your videos the they put uh, I don't know there's some type of clothing or, or a scarf around Mabu. I'm like, oh, that's clever. But yeah, it's probably from that experience. That's uh, exactly <laughs> awesome. Well, that that's a good way to, I think to end this interview. So, Corey, definitely appreciate your time. This is a uh, what you're working on is well fascinating from the technology perspective, but then also just uh, good for humanity. So it's uh. I'm excited to see where you guys go with stuff and, and maybe someday, well, hopefully I don't have too many health issues, but someday maybe I'll have Mabu in my home too. <laughs> um, that'd be awesome. Hopefully we'll get them out there for a lot of different reasons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you could, we don't, yeah, we're going to, I'm sure you've thought about other potential, uh, um, ways to use Mabu outside of healthcare or, or even just for wellness, healthy living. And, um, yeah, that's another whole podcast. So, uh, anyways, definitely appreciate your time and your thoughts and uh, sharing your experiences with us today, Corey. You're welcome. Thanks again for having me on. Yeah, and thanks for everyone for listening to another episode of Flyover Labs. We'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Hey, Corey. Yeah. Hey, hey that was awesome. That was really good. Great. Yeah, you're, you're quite uh, – I've done a lot of interviews, but you're quite uh, articulate and well-spoken and you can explain very complex <laughs> subjects very easily. So that's, uh, that's, that's uh, you explain something for 15 years. <laughs> you <Yeah>. learn how <laughs> yeah, exactly. you're at cocktail parties and they're like, what? <laughs> and then, yes, <laughs> no, oh. definitely. No, yeah, I think yeah, it's, it's quite cool what you guys are working on. So I'm, I would be, I'll be curious to follow your progress and it's exciting that you're shipping this, uh, this fall. So, yeah, that. we're very excited about it. So, big year for us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Are you trying to, um, at some point, raise more money? Uh, we actually are in the process right now. We just did a okay. first close of around last week, and we'll do uh, oh, the rest okay. of it at the end of the month. Yeah, gotcha. we didn't talk about that, but for this, my, I think it's more interesting to talk about the actual product and the use cases and the technology and. Yep. Interesting. All right. Well, good luck with stuff, and I will. It'll be a little bit before. I, um, post this um, unless you want it earlier it might be up to like uh, four to five weeks but I can post it earlier if you want um, no I'm in no rush okay. just uh, I'd appreciate you sending me a yes. link when it goes up uh, or uh, I'm on Twitter at Corey K C-O-R-Y-K okay. yep I'll, I... and then at Catalia Health and so if you mention either of those I'll make sure to retweet from both of those accounts okay excellent yep I will do that, and uh, yeah, and also usually a couple of days ahead of time, I'll send an overview of what the write up for the interview on, on yourself, and if you want, you can uh, 
edit or make changes or you can just say it sounds good or you can just ignore it and I'll just go ahead and post it. All right, great. <laughs> <laughs> that works for me. I look forward to seeing it. All right, sounds good. No, I appreciate it. Thanks, Corey. Take care. Bye-bye. Right, bye.